0: Snuff production.
1: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, October 14. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Jan Fran. Now, Jan, if you were an ex-Prime Minister, what sort of ex-Prime Minister do you think you'd be? Would you go quietly or would you be laying into the current government? Mm,
0: that's a good question. You know what? I reckon I might be a bit of a Gillard.
1: Ah, classy.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think the strong, silent, classy type. You don't really hear too much from Gillard re-sniping about the government now. She's, you know, she sits on a, on a number of boards. She's really focused on female education. Whereas Abbott, Rudd, and Turnbull, mate, they don't mind. They don't mind a bit of sniping, a bit of slagging off the government.
1: Yeah, and we don't mind giving um, Malcolm Turnbull a platform to do it because it's great hearing <laughs> him just go for it. We've given him two whole episodes. We had part one. Uh, Yesterday, We're giving you part two today, and this is where he really starts going for it. We ask him about, you know, the climate policy in the coalition. We also challenge Turnbull that for all his criticisms of Scott Morrison's government, it could actually be Morrison that gets the party to commit to net zero.
2: Scott does not face the internal problems that I had. But he's treading very carefully because every day he'll be saying to himself, I don't want to happen to me what happened to Malcolm.
1: I wonder if that's what he is thinking. Anyway, part two coming up with Malcolm Turnbull in the second half of this episode. First, here are the headlines.
0: Well, our first story relates directly to what Malcolm Turnbull said in yesterday's episode, um, focusing on the New South Wales government, and the state has announced plans to spend $3 billion building green hydrogen hubs. Um, This is in an effort to create regional jobs and also to halve carbon emissions by 2030.
1: Yeah, so Malcolm Turnbull's new job is promoting green hydrogen with Twiggy Forest and then straight away comes this big announcement. It comes after a billion-dollar announcement in Queensland on the weekend for a green hydrogen plant near Gladstone, the New South Wales plants are expected to be in the Illawarra and Hunter regions.
0: Yeah, that's right. And those particular regions are quite coal-heavy regions in New South Wales. So there's this direct strategy there, and and the Treasurer was out yesterday saying that green hydrogen was going to provide as many jobs, if not more jobs, than the coal industry. So, you know, it's the State Government saying to those locals don't worry, you're not going to lose your jobs, we're going to create new ones. Here is the Premier, Don Perrottet.
2: What we're saying is that inevitably, over time, we're going to move to a renewable future.
0: This really does seem like a a, a case of the states showing up the federal government, doesn't it? Because they've all committed to net zero by 2050. And as we know, the federal government is still deliberating whether to do that. Um, In fact, the nationals are going to have a party meeting on Sunday to decide whether or not they're going to accept the federal government's plan. So it seems like Australia is really moving forward with hitting this target, except for the federal government.
1: (laughs) Well, what's interesting about it is that it's coming down to the wire. Like, Glasgow starts in two weeks and they haven't decided on their policy position. They haven't decided if Scott Morrison's going to attend the summit. So mm. it's getting quite entertaining.
0: Yeah, well, entertaining's one word to put it. <laughs> Stressful might be another word. Unnecessary. Mm. A few words come to mind, some of which I can't say in polite company.
1: All right, lockdowns could ease um, quicker than expected for Victorians as they fast approach that 70% double dose target.
2: We've just got this little bit extra to do now to push past 70%. And if we can do that early before the roadmap,
1: what a fantastic problem for us to have. So he's talking about being four days ahead of schedule, which is, uh, I guess you take your wins where you can get them when you're in Victoria, don't you, Jan?
0: Yeah, well, you absolutely do. And yesterday we told you about New South Wales potentially Mm. reaching that target ahead of time as well. So it looks like both states are doing really well in in their vaccine rollout, Um, Victoria in particular, on track to have 70% of its eligible population fully vaccinated by next Friday. So good on you guys.
1: Yeah, New South Wales potentially hitting 80% over the weekend, which means we could be vertical drinking by 12.01am Monday.
0: Tom, you and I are not going to be vertical drinking (laughs) by 12.01am Monday. You know this. You'll be horizontal sleeping.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Probably vertical sleeping, actually.
0: (laughs) You're vertical sleeping. I'm horizontal sleeping for the moment, Exactly.
1: And production of the AstraZeneca vaccine in Australia could be over by Christmas. Obviously, we we don't want to manufacture something that's not going to be
2: utilised, and we will have a number of options moving into the future.
0: That was Professor Paul Griffin there. He sits on AstraZeneca's Australian advisory board. He was speaking to Nine News. Now, Nine is reporting that the drug, which is currently Australia's only locally made COVID vaccine, that it'll be taken off the production line at CSL's Melbourne factory by the end of the year.
1: Yeah, so they said they were proud to play a role in fighting COVID, but the disproportionate criticism meant that Pfizer and Moderna became far more popular and the demand for AstraZeneca isn't there. So it's been a strange old story, hasn't it, Jan? Because Mm AstraZeneca has been really effective, particularly in the UK, I think the key moment was the ATAGI advice where the modelling they did comparing the risks of um, taking the vaccine versus getting COVID were based on the the low COVID numbers, not the reality that we were always going to face that COVID would eventually circulate through the community.
0: I do recall AstraZeneca being called the workhorse of uh, Australia's vaccination rollout in that we were relying on it very heavily to do the heavy lifting. And yeah, as you say, it's had some some quite bad press and, and now it looks like it'll no longer be manufactured locally. I wonder if this will present a supply issue at some point in the future, if for whatever reason we have trouble getting Pfizer or Moderna shots from overseas or the booster shots that we might need. Yeah, it's an interesting one.
1: Yeah, workhorse has gone out to pasture.
0: I love this story. Well, it's bittersweet for me, actually. Mm. Um, But Bali is looking to reopen to international tourists from today. That's the good news. Yes. The slightly bad news is not looking to open to us just yet. They're going to open to China, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand and the UAE. But that has to do mainly with our borders and Australians not really being able to leave to go on holiday freely.
1: Right. So it's nothing to do with us behaving badly in Bali for decades.
0: No, I think they've been... <laughs>
1: They want that, don't they? They want given... that
0: back. Yeah. No, exactly. They they do want that back. And and Bali Tourism Minister was out saying that Australia is obviously a very key and important tourism market. He he said, you know, we are ready when you guys are. So really the hold up is with us. Um, Visitors, though, will have to be vaccinated. If they do want to go to Bali, they'll have to take COVID tests before and after the flight, and they Mm. will have to quarantine for five days on arrival. All doable Mm. for the pleasure of being in Bali, I reckon.
1: Well, you just get a bigger villa, don't you, if you're going to be stuck there for five days, bigger pool, you know, get the bin tank delivered, singlets, the whole thing. Um, I think what's funny about this, not that it's that funny, but um, the fact that New South Wales People could be travelling there as soon as November, but for Western Australians who love Bali more than anyone...
0: Yes!
1: ..it could be the final sort of kick up the bum for them to improve their vaccination rates and finally reopen.
0: I love that Australia, our possible vaccine kind of marketing ploy for WA is get vaccinated, not to end COVID, but to go to Bali.
1: Makes sense. That's the stuff that'll work. And 90-year-old Star Trek actor William Shatner has become the oldest person... To go to space joining an Australian on board Jeff Bezos' rocket this morning. You're going
0: 2,000 miles an hour, so you're through 50 miles and suddenly you're through the blue. And you're into black. And you're into, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's mysterious and galaxies and things, but what you see is black. Yeah, that was, um, William Shatner speaking there. I'm so, I'm, I mean, he must be doing really well for 90 because mm. some 90 year olds have trouble sitting down and standing up, let alone being in a spaceship where you're going for 2000. You know, he takes a toll on even the healthiest of bodies. So good on him. Yeah. He was a bit emotional when he got back to earth after that 11 minute flight, as you would be.
1: Mm. That was kind of funny to me hearing that because it was like, you know, he was going into space for the first time. He was clearly amazed by it. Be like, but you were Captain Kirk. You, you've been to space before.
0: Yeah. Uh-oh. Do, I, do we need to have a conversation about how Star Trek wasn't real?
1: How, how TV <laughs> works.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, when he landed, he was greeted by Jeff Bezos. Obviously, I think world's richest man he is and also a Star Trek fan. And he was joined on the flight by an Australian scientist, mm. Chris Boshausen. Australia doing, doing some funky business in space.
1: All right, Jan, we'll catch you tomorrow. Time for Turnbull part two. All right, so here is part two of our interview with Malcolm Turnbull. Katrina Blouse and I brought you part one yesterday. It was really interesting. We heard about his new job promoting green hydrogen. <laughs> the day we put that to air, you've got a $3 billion announcement from New South Wales on green hydrogen. He also laid into the Murdoch press for their road to Damascus moment, finally, on climate change. So that was yesterday. In this episode, we're talking about federal politics, what's happening with Scott Morrison with this standoff over net zero and going to Glasgow. So let's pick up where we left off. So if Scott Morrison, as you say, can get this over the line, do a deal with The National, somehow rein in the people on the fringe of his party, with the cover of the News Corp papers now supporting stronger action, it appears that he might be able to get net zero across the line. Will this be frustrating for you, that for all the scars you bear for fighting the climate change wars for over 10 years, that the man who took a lump of coal into parliament, the man who took your job is the one who actually gets this done?
2: No, not at all. I mean, I I want Australia to cut its emissions as quickly as possible. Committing to net zero by 2050 is fine, but everybody has done that, right? I mean, the Commonwealth Government's the only government in Australia that hasn't. The real issue is having a plan to cut emissions to a larger degree by 2030. I mean, we went to Paris in 2015 with a commitment to cut emissions by 26 to 28% by 2030. The expectation was that we would increase that ambition five years later. Now, you know, the 2020 COP, of course, was delayed because of COVID. So this is essentially the 2020 COP held a year later. And so we should be, you know, increasing our ambition by 2030, I would think, by... 45 to 50%. And you can absolutely do that economically. I mean, it simply requires the retirement of a number of coal-fired power stations sooner. A number of them will close sooner anyway, for economic reasons. So 45% cut in emissions by 2030 is now very doable. So you'll be happy that we get there on a policy level, but on a personal level, what's it like for you, for him to
1: finally get there and do something that you wanted to do for so long, but it ultimately actually destroyed your prime
2: ministership. Honestly, I'm focused on what's good for Australia and the world. There are all sorts of things that you can't get done at one time in politics because of people and circumstances, but then are doable later. You know, I was able to legalise same-sex marriage, you know, at the end of 2017. I don't think you could have possibly done that 10 years before. Individuals and leadership matters. Absolutely it does. But... Very often, circumstances, timing makes a big difference. I mean, the, the reality is that, you know, in Australia, after that dreadful summer of uh, the worst bushfires we'd ever seen in our, you know, history, I don't think anyone, anyone with, you know, half a brain, frankly, would seriously suggest that we are not feeling the consequences of global warming mm. in Australia now. You know, when you had hundreds of people huddled on beaches with the sun blocked out by smoke, uh, waiting to be evacuated by the Navy. I mean, man, if that doesn't tell you something about what's going on with the climate, what will? But there are still some of those voices on the far right of Scott Morrison's party, people like Christensen Canavan, who could blow up the, the tiny majority that he has in Parliament. Can you see this getting messy again? They could. You know, there are wreckers there. There's no doubt about that. One of the features of the right wing of the Liberal and National Parties has been that they are prepared to blow the joint up. Some of the more destructive people are no longer there. I mean, Tony Abbott is no longer in the Parliament. He's one of the most, probably the most destructive politician, certainly in my lifetime. And, you know, a guy who has defined himself by what he's against, by negativity he was very destructive during his time in politics whether he was a leader of the party or not but he's gone so scott does not face the internal problems that i had but he's treading very carefully because every day he'll be saying to himself i don't want to happen to me what happened to malcolm just bear this in mind i mean you can have a commitment to net zero by 2050 but what are you actually doing about it? I mean, you know, just remember earlier this year there was a by-election in the state seat of Upper Hunter in New South Wales and the National Party and the Labor Party were competing with each other to see who was most in favour of open-cut coal mining.
1: Hmm.
2: Now, you cannot get to net zero by 2050 if you're continuing (laughs) to expand coal mining, let alone open-cut coal mining, at the rate we are and you can't just say oh we'll just continue going on the way we are and then in 2045 you know when i'm long gone out of politics hopefully somebody will come up with a super duper invention that will suddenly make it all better well that's nonsense Mm. you've actually got to get planning and building now phasing out coal generation gas generation it's going to mean absolutely the end of coal mining in Australia. Now, you know, this strikes horror through many people's hearts and minds. But if the world is going to stop burning coal, and it has to in order to get to globally, to get to net zero by 2050, if the world's going to stop burning coal, why do we think we'll keep selling it? Mm. So we've got to plan for a post-coal future. And, you know, ultimately there's a lot of denialism going on, denialism of reality. Mm. And, you know, you've got to give Andrew Forrest credit, of course, but you've got to get the political level. You've got to give Anastasia Palaszczuk credit because she is not going up there in Queensland and saying, like Matt Canavan is, oh, you know, climate change is rubbish, net zero is rubbish, Uh, we're going to be digging up coal and exporting it forever. She's saying, okay, here is... The way we are going to capitalise on and create jobs in the new economy. Well, that's so right. If she
1: can turn up to those announcements with a hard hat on actually announcing something that's being built and will create jobs in the renewable sector, then that's what's really going to, I guess, win those hearts and minds. Got one last question for you, Malcolm Turnbull. How's your life post politics? I imagine you 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 maybe said you didn't want to weigh in too much, but you got too frustrated by some of the things you've seen, and we've we've heard a lot of commentary from you on the current government. But you also sound quite busy in these new roles. Um, um, what's life like? Are you still kayaking in Sydney Harbour? Yeah, I mean, yes, what's, I, how are things?
2: I, I kayak a lot. I I'm uh, you know I try to stay fit, but I love paddling my kayak. I do write and speak on public issues, but I know there's my uh, admirers uh, uh, at News Corporation are always saying that former Prime Ministers should be silent, but how about some of their columnists being silent? They wouldn't like that. So I think every citizen is entitled to express their views on matters of public interest. I'm no longer involved in party politics. I'm still a member of the Liberal Party, but I had made a decision a long time ago that when I stopped being PM, I would get out of Parliament and get out of party politics, but that doesn't mean I've become some sort of Trappist monk. Mm. Um, And in terms of business, I'm very active in the technology sector. You know, we've made in the last two years, I guess, uh, over 20 investments, venture capital investments in mostly Australian tech companies, cybersecurity companies like Casada, you know, big. Giants, what becoming right. huge giants like Canva.
1: When you say we, um, do you mean the, the family investment? Well, vehicle? well, when I
2: say we, I really mean me and Lucy. I mean, yeah. I'm not. I don't have a fund. I mean, the, the money we invest is our own money. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're substantial investments, but I'm not managing a fund. I've had a lot of opportunities to do that, but I th- I'm at this stage. I'm happy doing that. I'm very focused on the need to get uh, more pumped storage built i mean this is what i call the crisis within the crisis because wind and solar are getting cheaper and cheaper no question about that Mm. but you've got to be able to keep the lights on you know when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining and the best Mm. way to do that at large scale you know what they call long duration storage is with pumped storage so hence you know we need a lot more snowy hydro 2.0s and uh regrettably, the Morrison government has not got on with any of that. You know, there's a lot of focus in the kind of goldfish concentration span of the press gallery on, mm. you know, net zero by 2050. But ultimately, you've got to get on and build things. You know, you can't just talk about having feasibility studies and pilot plants, you've actually got to build enterprises of scale in- infrastructure of scale. And, uh to date, that just hasn't happened. And the failure to get on with battery of the nation in Tasmania, I think is, is quite shameful. I mean, I announced that four years ago, literally nothing has been built. Mm. Not not one hole has been dug, not one brick has been laid, not one cubic metre of concrete has been poured. The planet does not have time for dithering.
1: So there it is, part two of our interview with Malcolm Turnbull, the former prime minister. And there's so much hanging in the balance here. Well, Scott Morrison. Um, So much of what we just heard about will be decided over the next few days and weeks heading into Glasgow. So stay tuned to the briefing for all the updates. Listener